0: You are listening to the Edu Salon podcast, a space for connection and conversation around education. Each episode, Dr. Deborah Nedelitsky talks with a global education thought leader to
1: provide insights into where education is now and where it might move next. Hello. And welcome to the EduSalon podcast, recorded on the lands of the Kaurna people of the Adelaide Plains, to whose elders, past, present and emerging, I pay my respects. My name is Deborah Nedalitsky and today I'm excited to be speaking with Pat Thompson. Pat is a Professor of Education at the University of Nottingham, Professor at the University of South Australia and Honorary Professor at Deakin University. She's on a number of editorial boards, is Convener of the Centre for Research in Arts, Creativity and Literacy and is the author of the academic writing blog Patter, which is archived by the British Library and followed by academics around the world. It was a blog I read constantly when writing my PhD. Prior to taking up her role as an academic, Pat was principal of Parallawi School for 11 years, deputy principal at the Parks, and founding coordinator of Bowden-Brompton Community School. She's represented Australian principals on national policy-making bodies and at international conferences and was president of the South Australian Secondary Principals Association. She's a Fellow of the UK Academy of Social Science and the Royal Society of the Arts and has won numerous awards, including a Public Service Medal, a Fulbright Scholarship and the Garth Boomer Curriculum Prize from the Australian Curriculum Studies Association. Welcome, Pat. <laughs>
0: Thanks, Deb.
1: <laughs> I never know. You're appreciating that very long bio? Yeah,
0: well, yeah, I never know whether I recognise myself in all of that or not, but yes.
1: Well, you're a busy and an accomplished woman. So, we'll start the conversation and... One of your current projects is around school leaders' work and well-being, uh, looking at the sustainability of school leadership in England. Uh, and I read the report from April this year that said that many school leaders are exhausted and considering leaving their profession or retiring early. Can you tell me a bit about that project and what it is that you're finding?
0: Yes, um, I guess this is a a topic that I've come back to a few times actually i I did a project um in two thousand and two to two thousand and five, which was an Australian project with Jill Blackmore, and we were looking at much the same kind of issue. and at that time, in both Australia and the uk there was a there was a crisis in terms of well, you know in terms of numbers of people leaving the profession but also not wanting to take up the job of school leader and so you know that was the first time I think I I dabbled with that but of course when I was president of a principals association I was also involved in some of those same kinds of concerns and then I picked it up again in about 2008-2009 and bear with me when I tell you this kind of long little, little story really but when I first went to the UK in 2003 and I was teaching a class of um, largely people who were as the English call them head teachers um, and as the in the first round of introductions bear in mind I'd been in the UK for about three weeks at this point it, a woman stood up and introduced herself to me and said hello I'm and said her name and then said I'm a failed head teacher and I was really shocked by that, that that was something that somebody would actually kind of say to me that it was a sort of a joke, but it sort of wasn't. You know, there was a there, there was a kind of, a, you know, just a whole lot of emotions, obviously, that are sitting around that, you know, it's kind of embarrassing, angry, you know, all of that was suppressed, um, but you could sort of read that that was what was going on. And so from, from then on, really, I, I started collecting stories about what it meant to be a failed head teacher. And in 2008, I wrote a book which was published in 2009 called Heads on the Block, which was really, I guess, me trying to come to terms with how vulnerable head teachers and, or school principals actually are in the English context. You know, and they're fond of using the metaphor of being a kind of football coach who, you know, the football coach gets football being soccer, and they regularly get sacked in England when their team's not performing well. And there was much the same mentality with people in schools so that if your school wasn't doing well, then, you know, you were really vulnerable and you really could be just kind of chopped. There are all sorts of reasons why people you know were seen to not be doing well some of which weren't anything much to do with them at all I mean there's lots of things and you'd know yourself as a school leader I mean you just there's just things that happen you know (laughs) somebody's in an accident you know and accidents can happen anywhere but it just happens to be something that the media for some reason it's a bad slow day and they decide to take it up and suddenly you're on the front page of the national news you know so there are things that range from that to you know people who were working in and notoriously a lot of the people who were in schools that were on the edge were people who worked in neighborhoods that were on the edge they're hard schools to work in and you know very often there's all kinds of reasons why the kids don't do that well in tests and exams so you know I hadn't done much about this topic really for quite some time it's a topic I get very that makes me pretty upset I have to say it's a it's and I don't like doing a lot of research, which I find distressing and and and, and that makes me angry. I always have to have a joyful project <laughs> on at the same time. but when the pandemic happened and you know in that sort of first six months. One of my colleagues, Toby Greeny, who's who used to be at the National College for School Leadership and had his own kind of independent engagement with questions of retention and attraction, recruitment to the position and as well as obviously the National College was involved in training. Bizarrely Toby and I lived in the same street, um in Nottingham. And so We had a a conversation at one point um, during lockdown, which basically and was probably dog walking involved, I think, which basically went along the lines of, God, it must be awful to be a school principal at the moment or a head teacher at the moment. And I wonder what's happening um, and how people are managing, really. And so we ended up with what was a three-phase project. And we, first of all, Got in touch with people that we'd worked with before, which is the National Association of Head Teachers and the Association for School and College Leaders. They're the two big school leader unions in England, and so we did we did the obvious thing and did a survey. First of all, it was about oh, I suppose about one and a half thousand people, which isn't a lot in a in a country which has got over you know twenty two thousand schools, but there were one and a half thousand people who responded. And the results were kind of shocking, actually, because three in five people at that point said that they, it told us in the survey that they were thinking about leaving, which is an awful lot. And we asked people in the survey if any any of them would be prepared to be interviewed, and uh, a number of people said they did. And so we had enough funding to interview 50 people. And it was quite harrowing, I think, really, for the interview. I didn't do the interviews, but for the person who did the interviews, who was herself also an ex head teacher, Susan Cousin. And I think Susan did a lot of listening and responding to something that was quite cathartic for people, but we ended up with a lot of stories that we thought had to be told. And so we we've worked with various ways of trying to tell people's stories including kind of writing them in a, in a more poetic form than you usually find in research and then we got a bit more money <laughs> you know this is a kind of university story in a way you know so we get a bit of money for this a little bit of money here where the
1: funding comes you get to do the next bit
0: but yeah well exactly that's right so we got a little bit more money from someone else and So we decided that we would find out by this time the kind of the period of lockdown was over and we, although that, you know, the pandemic was still going, was still raging... And we'd already gathered from the interviews that we'd done that some people who said they they were thinking of going had actually changed their mind and thought they were going to stay. And some people who thought they were going to stay had changed their mind and thought they were going to leave. And we could see that this was a really volatile kind of situation and just changed really according to how people were at the particular moment when really, when we kind of talked to them. And so we did another survey, this time working with, an organization called teacher tap which is a very interesting kind of it asks a couple of questions daily of teachers on a panel like a of 7,500 educators yeah yeah it's it, different questions it asks every day it's become a very important source of information actually and so that was with that was about six and a half thousand people actually we were able to to ask you know how they were going, and how they were whether they were thinking of leaving or not at that point in time. And at that stage, there were the, the number had changed to be about two in five, just over two in five. So there were less people that were thinking of of leaving than before. And different people have done surveys in England and in other places, and the numbers do vary. But two out of five still fairly significant number. We were able to interview some more people and this time we interviewed assistant and deputy heads and they, not surprisingly really, um, said most of them said they weren't going to be applying for a head teacher's job and they'd watched what was going on during the pandemic and there was no way they were going to put themselves through that. And they also told us a lot about what their jobs had been like during the pandemic and after. You know, one of the things that um, we found early on in the first survey was just this really incredible, probably not that surprising really, but there was an incredible lack of trust in in the government. It was over 90% of the people in the first survey said they didn't trust the government. And that seems to me pretty shocking, really. I guess, you know, school principals are reasonably conservative, I think. They want to they keep things going. They don't want to be bolshy. They do want to do what's right, um, I think, by and large. And, you know, they just felt that the decisions that the government had made were, you know, they came too late or they kept changing their mind or um, they were tone deaf about what was actually happening in schools. And a lot of them just felt really not valued. And I don't think that's come back. I think that's what we saw, I think, in the... Second study and then the third study in the interviews and the third project that we did was was actually a set of policy roundtables. We did 10 roundtables around the country with different types of people. So we had business managers and we had people who were providers of uh, professional development and training programs for um, school leaders. We had school leaders themselves. We had one group of black and minority ethnic um, school leaders, people in think tanks, you know, we had governors, you know, so there were a range of different people. And it was it was kind of clear then that that some people were able to do some things at the local level about some of the kind of working conditions that people were talking about, these incredibly long hours that they were working. But also that there were things that probably needed to be done centrally and or regionally in order to actually make a change. So there were those projects and then we decided that it would be that we probably needed to keep going and as is the case with big funding. You never know whether you're going to get it or not. It's always a bit of a lottery about whether you do. And we won the lottery on this occasion and managed to get quite a large grant as part of a new funded program looking at teachers and also all things digital that was being funded by something called the Economic, Social and and Research Council.
1: I actually pulled out Heads on the Block from my bookshelf today as I was thinking about our conversation because that, as you say, that 2009 book really talks about the then daily pressures on principles and the demands and that precarity and vulnerability that you talked about that heads were feeling. And then you're saying you've done this sort of 20 sort of pandemic into 2023 research that is continuing to be a time when people are feeling precarious vulnerable and and you've got what well, almost half the schools potentially looking to lose principals because they're going to leave and then all the deputy and assistants saying well we're not going to step in because that looks like it's not a great deal <laughs> I know this isn't your joyful project but are there things that you're finding that are places we might look to in how we do attraction retention support better for heads
0: as part of the third little project pandemic project we did produce a little book of good practice of things that people were doing um and they kind of ranged a lot of them weren't cheap you know like i can think of one academy quite small academy trust but where for example they always had a new person working, a newly appointed person working alongside the incumbent for a period of time. So there was actually um, some kind of shared responsibility and learning that that went on. And that's certainly not cheap to do. Um, And places where, you know, they routinely provided um, more support for people. Um, one of the things that we came to realise actually was that there were there were different kinds of support that people needed at different times and in different locations. And so I think that's potentially a bit helpful is actually just to understand that people might have an entitlement to support but what that is is might need to be negoti- negotiated. So the things that we identified I think were firstly... A kind of when people are first appointed um, a mentor is actually quite helpful so a mentor is someone who's got a lot of professional experience and he's actually going to be able to give you some advice about what to do in particular circumstances and then there's a coach and the coach doesn't provide advice the coach really provides a, a framework through which you can work things out for yourself and they you know, give you, I guess, a kind of a hug and a kick in the backside if you need it. But, you know, mostly it's about which is a kind of support for you to, you know, just get on with it um, and sort things through. So I think there's mentoring and coaching. And then there's two kinds of supervision. And there's professional supervision, which is, I think, about um, talking through some of the kind of curriculum, pedagogical assessment and and Theories around leadership, for example, so it's a kind of an intellectual relationship. I think based very much on the knowledge base of the school leader and how it is that that knowledge base can be, um, and the repertoire of principles practice can be kind of improved. And then I think the fourth thing is a clinical supervision, which is like the clinical supervision that social workers have. And I think for people in some particular situations and I'd say everyone who needs an alternative provision um, for a start and then probably some people in schools where they're working with um, communities that have really done it hard and where there's quite a lot of trauma. So it could be, you know, large refugee populations or it could be people where there's a lot of intergenerational poverty. I think there's there's just a, a, a process there of working with someone who helps you get through your kind of emotional responses to, the, to working in those circumstances so you just don't wear it or wear it all the time and, you know, bottle it up. But yet you kind of have to deal with those things. So I think different people just need different things at different times and sometimes you know, your coach might really infuriate you because what you actually want to have is an intellectual conversation about the kind of latest thinking about assessment, for example. Um, So, you know, I I guess I'm thinking a bit as a school principal, you might want to be able to negotiate that as long as you had a kind of entitlement and a a set of people that you could call on at different times. Mm. So... I think that's probably some of the kinds of things that we're looking for are some of those kinds of um, interventions that might be um, able to be provided at the local or regional level.
1: I think one of the things that seems common across all of those is you've obviously got the professional expertise of the person, the coach, the mentor, or the supervisor, therapeutic or professional, but you've also got that there's a an investment in time and space that actually, because in, in a school leadership position, the busyness can just swallow up all of your time. So it's almost like this is permission to, but also investment in whether it's being coached, whether it's being mentored and getting advice, whether it's having that supervisory relationship, you know, it's actually that moment to stop, pause and spend time thinking, working through, talking through in a safe space um, is what all of those probably provide but for different reasons and in different ways.
0: Yeah, and I think we've been thinking about the time question a lot um, and we have, well, we've got a paper just about to come out um, we're still, I'm still struggling through the proofs at the moment, but um, it, which is about time. And one of the things that we're, we've come to argue, I think, through the pandemic data analysis that we did, was that while the pandemic was abnormal um, and it was a very prolonged crisis for which people were Ill, ill-equipped, nobody was equipped for it and people were and making decisions the like of which they'd never had to make before and they had not much to call on except, you know, their own kind of working through issues and whatever support they could get from their, their peers and their professional association and sometimes from somebody in a line management position. Um, there was also an important continuity and the continuity that we can see is actually that, by and large, during the day, during I don't know if this will tally you with your experience or not, but it certainly fits with mine. During the day, I think the school leader spends a lot of time out and about. So sometimes they're doing work associated with school improvement. Sometimes it's just a set of encounters with people. Years ago, Harry Walcott you know did an ethnography called the man in the principal's office (laughs) highly gendered at the time but still um, which just showed I mean these myriad of often unplanned and unexpected encounters that happen during the day many of which take five minutes ten minutes some of them might spin out more They're all people-related, so, you know, they might be to do with um, a student or a set of students, they might be to do with a staff member, they might be a parent, might be somebody from the office that, you know, somewhere else that if you're in a state system that, you know, or a Catholic system that rings up. This pattern, I think, is being documented sporadically. Jeff Southworth looked at it again just as local school management was coming into... Um, England and looked at the way in which that pattern was starting to be impacted I guess but found much the same thing during the day people don't spend a lot of time doing their email and sitting in front of a computer they might if they're a a deputy or an assistant uh, head they might spend more time than other people but by and large you know there's there are some in-school meetings But by and large, it's this kind of activity that goes on. And I've recently seen a paper which talks about these as five minutes. Actually, it's from one of the Nordic countries, but talks about this as the kind of five-minute encounters and the number of five-minute encounters that happen during a day. So if that's the case that people spend and it's certainly what happened during the pandemic people were spending lots of those five minute times dealing they were a lot more than five usually but dealing with all the kind of stuff that was going on and then after school there's very often things that you have to do as well there's meetings or there's you know events yeah events or you know and the events can be on weekends and sometimes in the evenings as well and Harry Walcott documented all of that too. And then around that, you have to fit the admin. So the time for the admin is actually after hours on the weekend, you know. And so, and this is what happened during the pandemic. So instead of the, I think the most recent data in England, I'm not going to get this figure exactly right, but the most recent workplace diary that was done for school leaders. I just released it, it was 2019, pre-pandemic, and it's something like 56 hours a week that the school leader works. And what they are complaining about, not surprisingly, is the admin that they have to do and the admin that the, you know, and but the paper doesn't go on to show the data, DFE data doesn't go on to say when that admin was done our research and I guess, you know, a lot of people's experience is that a lot of that is actually done at night and on the weekend. So our conclusion is like, this is a dopey way to organise a job, really. And it's not that these thing, a lot of these things can be given away. I mean, we used to say oh, you know, you need a business manager to do all this stuff. But a lot of schools have got business managers now. And certainly in England, they've got business managers. So it's not that, you know, people are working 56 hours because they're doing the work of a business manager. They've got someone who's got a pretty high level qualification in business management. But it's because, you know, a lot of that work you don't want to give away, you don't want to give away. the the oversight of the budget you don't want to give away the oversight of you know whatever policy thing Mm. you're being asked to do Mm. and thinking about how that's going to play out you know you want to keep it keep a sight of all of that which means you know that somehow there's a there's a redesign question it seems to me in here as opposed to thinking about it's getting in more people but it's the way the job is currently designed at the moment and i I suppose if I was in a school now, I could think of things I might want to try and I might want to think about a school leadership team being a little bit like a journal, you know, so that we were going to have somebody maybe on a roster out of the the school leadership team who just did a desk reject, you know, when things come in and it just somebody can just deal with a number of the routine things. I mean, I'm a bit interested in thinking about how could AI actually help in some of the admin work? And I've started to have a, a few conversations with some of my colleagues who are looking at AI and thinking about whether there's any anything smart you could do about some of the admin that's being asked, uh, the requirements that are being asked. But I, for me, it's in that question of thinking about redesign because I just think, you know, the work all day, work after hours and then work when you get home and on the weekend. This is just dopey.
1: Well, it also doesn't help with your recruitment
0: pipeline, does it? When people see that that's and what the job looks no, like. No, 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 no. And it doesn't matter how many stories you get about how joyful a work is because it very often is joyful. And even during the pandemic, people got had a great sense of pride in being able to accomplish things against the odds. You know, they were feeding kids, getting school lunches out to people. They they were getting the tech on top of the tech and online teaching in an incredibly short space of time, you know, turning things around really quickly. There was a lot for them to be proud about, but that was operating at the same time as, you know, the the sense that this is unsustainable.
1: So you're looking a bit at systems and governments and structures and then even the design of the job itself some of the work you've done though is also around resisting as an individual leader expectations or accountabilities or you've used punk in some ways as a metaphor for what how leaders might conceptualize or maybe how researchers might conceptualize leaders who you know do their own thing maybe or resist expectations do you want to talk a little bit about that work
0: there's limits to what you can do in relation to saying no to things. I'm always, and I've told this story in a number of places. So apologies if you've heard it. Deb. You know, I'm minded of a a head teacher in Nottingham who who had a, a wonderful a wonderful primary school, and she was a very interested in language and literacy. And when the literacy hour was instituted, and all schools were going to do it, have to do it. Um, she decided that she didn't want to do it, um, which was a very brave move. But because she was incredibly well-networked and she'd been around forever, um, she was able to summon the chief inspector, Chris Woodhead, to the school and say, you know, Chris, I don't want to do this. Look at my children's work and how wonderful it is. And why would I want to change that um, and, and do this kind of literacy hour that, you know, that's for schools that don't do as well in literacy that I do. And I think he said at the time, well, you know, her name, you know, as long as your children do well on the tests, it doesn't matter. So, you know, that for me is always the kind of you know, there's some things you can't resist, like the TED. She could manage to not do the literacy hour, but only as long as she actually did the, the real bottom line, which was the tests. And there's also a kind of moral obligation there as well with students. I think you I think you have students rightfully, even if you think the curriculum is a nonsense and a qualification or an assessment regime is nonsense. The kids actually depend on that. For the credential and for their life opportunities. So, you can't do anything really that's going to damage their life opportunities. That would be really unethical. So, I think there are frames around what you can and can't do. Um, Having said that, I hardly know a, well, certainly I hardly know of a, head teacher or school principal who who hasn't at some point just put something on the shelf and said, well, you know, I'll deal with that if they, if they follow it up. If they follow it up, I'll know they're serious.
1: There's a couple of things there. One is that that person that you talked about had some credibility and had a network and had a kind of legacy that allowed them to resist. I think that's interesting. Absolutely. Um, that, you know, perhaps an early career person or someone that's in a vulnerable position doesn't have the capacity or doesn't Absolutely. feel they have the capacity to say, no, that's not for us. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that was interesting.
0: Yeah, and I, I think, you know, that she was an individual and I think, but I think collectively people can do more collectively mm. as well. So it is possible for i think people to work with whatever level of organization it is and and refuse or adapt or modify something um and then kind of make the case for why you know that's so and actually i mean in england there's a, a pretty clear example of that at the moment i mean the the current government was dead keen for all schools. I think their goal was by 2025, they wanted 90% of secondary schools to do something called the Education Baccalaureate, which is a particular combination of subjects which leave out um the arts and uh, phys ed and you know a number of yeah, number of things that kids like to do um and it, it was basically you know english math science um either history or geography and a language um and this is called the educa- the um the english baccalaureate and that's that's um it's really a performance measure for schools it's not it doesn't do anything for children at all for the students but it, you know, it wanted, the government wanted all schools to, to do the English baccalaureate. Now, the last count of schools doing them, bear in mind 90% by 2025, the last count was this year and I've just looked at it and it's about 38%. So there's, there, there's no way 90% of them are going to be doing it in, uh, you know, in a year and a half. And that's clearly schools resisting Um, not overtly, but actually saying, I think, usually with their governing bodies, um, you know, that this is not a suitable curriculum for a lot of our students. A lot of our students need something else. So it's not been a question of just resisting for the sake of it because they think the the baccalaureate is a silly system. It's actually based, I think, on a kind of judgement about what the students need.
1: And lots of your work is around arts education, for students and the benefits of that I assume that's slightly more joyful than some of this work you're doing on school <laughs> leadership so do you want to talk for a couple of minutes about what you know what is it that you I suppose why are you drawn to that but also what are the what are the takeaways around the benefits of arts rich education for young people
0: okay so We are just at the end of the second of two big projects looking at arts richness. So we've looked at arts-rich secondary schools and we're now at the end of um, looking at arts-rich primary schools. And they're schools which have a pretty robust um, full arts offering for children in primary school, um, arts-rich primary schools that we've been looking at um, teach art and music to all children every week, every year so plus other things, and they have specialist teachers, specialist facilities, which kind of set of relationships with cultural organisations. Um, so they're, you know, they're pretty vibrant places and generally the, well, no, always, um, that the arts are connected with at least one other priority. So the most common that we've seen has been to do with... Um, environmental sustainability so what are called echo schools in the english context or rights respecting schools so it's about human rights education and the arts and that other priority actually work very closely together and very harmonium. They kind of complement each other um, and the schools are very distinctive so they have a kind of a personality they have a sort of an DNA, you kind of go into the, you know, as soon as you're in the school, you can tell it's, a, it's, a, it's uh, something different. Um, there's, you know, there's, and there's generally a lot of student work going on, you know, around the place There's often signs of all kinds of interesting things happening. Certainly when we've been researching in primary schools, um, and we've been looking at 40 in depth, in twenty five of them they have um student art student arts councils. They have a kind of you know part of their student governance structure mm. in the school, their representative council they they have a kind of an arts council as part of that, which does have quite which is in dialogue with the arts lead and quite often the the school the school head at the same time and they help in the kind of planning and design of the arts curriculum. They obviously consult and do all kinds of things with their peers. And, you know, on some occasions, you know, our researcher Liam's been met at the school door by the Arts Minister, um, you know, who will be a child in Year 5 or Year 6 and given the kind of the tour and the talk about the arts policy and whatever. So they're pretty interesting schools and certainly they're... um, One of the things that we can see is that there's no one way to do arts richness. They're, They're very diverse schools and they do multiple... There are multiple ways to be arts rich, even though there are some common patterns. And I think one of the things that we can see in all of the primary and secondary schools is that the leaders' hands are generally all over this. You know, that this is, this is something that they take a kind of personal interest in, in the same way that you know they might if there was another specialization but i think i think it's a, a, an example of we often talk about educational leadership or instructional leadership or whatever but it is an example of how it is that school leaders take a, a couple of things that are important and then build the kind of school improvement program and it, it's it's kind of maintenance and improvement and ongoing improvement, they build around um, something that they can construct a story about and they can construct. So it's very much, in my terms, kind of cultural leadership as well. They're really managing the kind of culture of the school and what goes on there. Um, And often, you know, because the arts are, they tend to be, um, you know, lively and interesting these are often places. These are often schools which um, are kind of turnaround schools as well. They've they've oh, sometimes they've been in the doldrums, and the arts has been part of the process of of getting better, yeah. of improving. And yeah, they've pro- they provide a kind of identity for the school. They provide a sense of meaning and belonging for the children and for the staff as well. Um, and they provide a real source, I think, of professional support for teachers um, as well. I mean, we've just done a survey, in fact, across the schools, asking them, asking the generalist teachers how much they teach the arts and and how they feel about their teaching, you know, whether they feel confident. And most of the research says primary teachers don't feel that good about teaching the arts. They haven't had done much of it in their teacher education. They don't feel confident, whatever. And as you, as we'd hoped, and as you actually you'd expect in these schools, that's not the case. The teachers feel very well supported. There's specialists they can they can work with uh, and turn to, and and they do a lot of um, arts teaching themselves as well as the specialists. Terrific. So
1: I'm going to shift gears a bit, and we're going to move to the uh, final five questions, which I call the enlightening round. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, the the first of which is. What is something unexpected that people might not know about you?
0: Mm. Well, probably lots of things, but um, (laughs) what I could say is that um, I didn't go straight into teaching and one of the first jobs that I had was actually um, looking after people's clothes um, on film sets.
1: Wow.
0: (laughs) (laughs) There you are. (laughs) the early days of the South Australian Film Corporation and a couple of things that never actually went to air, there I was clothing people.
1: Terrific. What about something that's currently on your desk?
0: I'm currently kind of camping in my current house at the moment, waiting for, well, you're going to ask me what I'm expecting, so I won't quite give that away yet. But um, one of the things I have on my desk at the moment is... um, is a small packet of silver clay Um, and I'm working with silver clay at the moment because my um, silversmithing studio is in a container coming from England to Australia. So that's another something people may or may not know about me is that I I took up uh, silversmithing pretty seriously a few years ago.
1: And is that what you're wearing today, your earrings and
0: necklace? Are they... Are they Pat Thompson originals? Uh, no, they're not actually, no, but um, I, I could make these, but they, they just happen to be things that, uh, you yeah, old favourites. In fact, the necklace is something I've had. is probably about 50 years old. So it's got a lot of sentimental value <laughs> attached to it as well.
1: So the silver clay is getting you by in the meantime.
0: Absolutely, because I can't, I can't saw anything, I can't solder anything. So I can, all I can do is kind of muck around with a bit of a few beads and a bit of um, a bit of clay.
1: So what about someone who inspires you in the work that you do?
0: Um. Well, I think at the moment, probably. I don't know, It's actually inspire, but I th- I find myself thinking a lot about some of the art teachers that um, we've been looking at, I suppose, and talking with um, across these projects. Um, and they're probably the kind of people that in England years ago would have got jobs as advisors in the local authority. You know, they are they have a kind of depth of curriculum expertise um and you know what what you know academics call pedagogic content knowledge you know they just know so much about their discipline um and they have so many interesting ideas as well as being so committed to what they're doing um that it just seems to me that you know they are an example of what it is we would want a lot we would want teachers to be able to do i think is to really speak I mean they've made curriculum as well they haven't bought anything off the shelf they've they've really worked hard at developing their own approaches their own distinctive kind of approaches to things and not ev- not everybody can do that or probably should do that um but I think they are yeah they they are I think I find them pretty inspirational in the way that they um, they're working
1: mm, and nice to do work where you're inspired by the people that you're researching alongside Absolutely. Yeah, mm. mm. so how about one thing that you've got coming up that you're excited about
0: <laughs> other than my my container container <laughs> <laughs> except i did get i when i got here to um to adelaide my my macbook died and um which you know has been pretty pretty difficult i have to say and my new macbook arrived from china today so perhaps i'm and I didn't know it was going to come from China do you realize that, that if you buy a something that's vaguely has to be kind of adjusted in some way it has to come all the way from China and I've been able to track on on my iPad, on the way note exactly where it's been from China to Hong Kong to Singapore to Sydney to Melbourne to Adelaide and, you know, it finally arrived to me today. So, yes, I'm probably looking forward to actually getting that out. Out. Um, I've got it charging at the moment and making it work.
1: Excellent. And have you, are you tracking your container? Do you know where that is in its travels?
0: No, we don't know where it is. We just know it's somewhere somewhere on the sea. On the sea, <laughs> on its way. Yeah, late January it arrives. Excellent.
1: And so finally, if you were to distill your current thinking about education or arts or leadership down to its essence, what's one thought or resource that you would leave listeners with?
0: Uh, Yes, I don't don't know that I can kind of answer this really. Um, But perhaps to say, you know, I read a lot of novels um, (laughs) and... Um for me, I think it's really important for people, whether they're academics or whether they're working in a school. but I think if you're working in education um you really have to and I'm going to steal Maxine Green's um notion of being wide awake to the world. I think you do have to kind of take an take an interest and understand what's happening out in the world as well as trying to understand what's happening in the lives of children. So for me, that's partly about reading a lot. It's also watching a lot of... I watch a lot of television, including very bad television, Um, so I can try and understand what's happening in the world. But, yeah, I think that's part of being an educator is that wide awakeness to what's happening.
1: Mm. Wide awakeness to what's happening.
0: Well, Maxine Green said, wide wide, wide awakeness to the world. Mm. That's the exact quote.
1: Well, thank you, Pat, for joining me today on the Salon. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to the Salon podcast. You can join the conversation by subscribing to this podcast and sharing it with your network, by giving this podcast a rating or review, and by connecting with Deb and her guests on social media.